It's Tuesday, June 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Is it illegal for businesses to require proof of vaccination? Short answer is no. In some states such as Texas, Florida, Utah, and others, they have banned vaccine passports, but that does not apply to private businesses. Misinformation is floating around on the internet, citing protection from the Fourth Amendment. But the reality is, a business can ask you to voluntarily disclose your vaccination status, and you can refuse, but that business also has the right to refuse entry. Sasha Hupka, reporter at capradio.org, joins us for some fact-checking. Next, it was August 1st, 1981, when MTV was launched, playing the first ever music video on television. That video was Video Killed the Radio Star by The Buggles. To celebrate the importance of MTV as a cultural and musical force, there's a new exhibit at the Grammy Museum in Mississippi. The exhibit is called MTV Turns 40, I Still Want My MTV, and it's open to the public now. It spotlights pivotal moments in their history, everything from its inception to Yo! MTV Raps, MTV Unplugged, Beavis and Butthead, and even the Jersey Shore. Bob Santelli, founding executive director of the Grammy Museum and curator of the MTV exhibit, joins us for what MTV meant for music and popular culture. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. If a business employee or a business owner asks somebody for proof of vaccination or says, hey, you can't provide proof of vaccination, I'm afraid that I'm going to have to ask you to wear a mask to come inside, or I'm afraid I can't let you in, that person is most certainly not going to be put to death because of that or thrown in jail for a very long period of time. Joining us now is Sasha Hupka, reporter at capradio.org and contributor to PolitiFact California. Thanks for joining us, Sasha. Thanks for having me. You know, there's a lot of talk about vaccine passports and can a business require you to get a vaccination before you use their services, things like that. There's a lot of misinformation that is rolling around. And one that you wrote about recently, there's an image being shared on Instagram and Twitter claiming that businesses can't legally require customers to provide proof of vaccination or deny them entry based on their vaccination status. It goes on to say that those people, if they're trying to stop you, those businesses or individuals can be put in jail, even given the death penalty. These things get passed around. I think this one in particular has been shared thousands of time on Instagram and Twitter, and uh, people start believing it. The quick answer of it is that that's not true. So, Sasha, uh, help us walk through some of this. What can businesses do when it comes to proof of vaccination? According to legal experts, businesses have a number of rights when it comes to letting people onto their private property. So businesses can ask you, hey, can I see proof of vaccination? An employee might ask you that. They have the right to ask you that. You don't have to answer them. But if you don't, they also have the right to say, you know, we really can't let you onto the property without your vaccination status. There might be certain instances in which somebody has a disability. They are not able to get a vaccination for a medical reason. And so therefore, in that case, you know, the business will likely try to provide a reasonable accommodation. So a grocery store might say, if you aren't vaccinated and can't prove to us that you're vaccinated in order to enter the grocery store, you need to be wearing a mask. And unvaccinated people have to wear masks. But people who are vaccinated and can show proof of that don't have to. There might be other instances like a movie theater where you would have to wear a mask in order to watch the movie or where it's a large scale event where only vaccinated people can really 
be in that space, in which case they might try to provide some sort of virtual option for people who are unvaccinated or who cannot be vaccinated. But until we reach herd immunity, this is likely what it's going to look like in California and also possibly in a number of other states, because we have seen the other states have rolled out vaccine passports and similar reopening frameworks. There's a several states who have voiced their opposition to vaccine passports, things like that. Texas, Florida are two big ones, but also Idaho, Montana, Arizona, Utah. They all have some type of executive order or law on the books that say, you know, places can't require proof of vaccination. But that largely is limited to government offices or places that receive government funding. Privately owned businesses don't fall under that. And as you mentioned, there are other states like New York that have rolled out their systems of vaccine passports. So as these states keep reopening, we're going to be seeing a lot of this and it's going to cause a lot of confusion. Yes, absolutely. And it really already has. I mean, we've already seen numerous kind of versions of this claim around the Internet that businesses can't ask you for proof of vaccination or can't deny entry based on vaccination status. And there's been a number of kind of different reasons that have been given in some of this false information as to why that is my story and the fact check that I did on this issue specifically pertain to the Fourth Amendment and the U.S. Civil Rights Act. But I've also seen claims that have been checked by national fact-checking organizations regarding HIPAA and that asking for uh, proof of vaccination or denying entry based on that violates HIPAA, which is also completely false. So there's kind of numerous versions of this claim that are floating around out there. And I think that it's important as we move into this next stage of reopening that people understand what is true and, and what isn't true. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, businesses have a lot of leeway on how they want to operate. And this falls under their purview. If they want to ask for it and you don't want to cooperate, they can ask you to leave at that point, right? I feel like a lot of businesses are, aren't going to be asking. They're going to be more on the side willing to get people in there. But if some unruly customer comes in or something like that, that's all the more reason to push people out and say, hey, we're not going to be able to do this. Going back to that example that we used of that graphic that's been floating around on the internet right now, it says the penalty of this, that uh, the business or the individual telling you you need to show us your vaccine passport or that you've been vaccinated could be go to jail or be punishable by death. That's also not true, too. That is not true. The image specifically cites Title 18 USC Section 242, and that's a part of the federal criminal code that specifically addresses the deprivation of rights. And the law states that those who are acting, quote, under the color of law who willfully deprive a person in the U.S. of their constitutional rights can go to prison or in really extreme cases, if somebody dies because of that or there's serious injury, they could receive capital punishment. But it's important to note that that law specifically says under the color of law. Those are the exact words. And that part of the law specifically means that it pertains to officials, government officials who violate a person's rights. And I actually had a legal expert tell me that this really does not at all apply to private businesses or individuals. It's completely not relevant. So it's completely not true. If a business employee or a business owner asks somebody for proof of vaccination or says, hey, you can't provide proof of vaccination. I'm afraid that I'm going to have to ask you to wear a mask to come inside or I'm afraid I can't let you in. That person is most certainly not going to be put to death because of that or thrown in jail for a very long period of time. That's completely untrue. Sasha Hupka, reporter at capradio.org and contributor to PolitiFact California. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.
me now is Bob Santelli, founding executive director of the Grammy Museum and curator of the MTV at 40 exhibit. Bob, thank you very much for joining us. Ah, it's a pleasure. Something that uh, was very influential in my life and a lot of people's lives. We're going to talk about MTV. It's turning 40 years old. It's amazing to think that there's a new exhibit at the Grammy Museum in Mississippi. It's called MTV Turns 40. I still want my MTV. It's open to the public now. And uh, I mean, it just has a, a lot of the history that goes on there. It's really the first exhibit ever kind of that shows the importance of MTV as a cultural and a musical force. Bob, tell me a little bit about the exhibit, and then we'll get into some of the fun stuff that MTV played, you know, the big role that it played in music. The exhibit, as you said, basically charts the importance of MTV or music television, especially in the 1980s when it first surfaces, and how it impacts both popular culture and popular music. And it had profound implications for both of those. So the goal of the exhibit was essentially to educate people, especially young people who weren't even born when the uh, MTV first started in August of 1980. And so 1981, I should say. The key here is that this is an exhibit that had the cooperation of MTV. We pulled artifacts from VJs, original VJs. We pulled artifacts and did interviews with some of the earliest founders of MTV. All in all, it was a very big cooperative exhibit that we hope tells that story and shows the impact and enlightens people today who watch MTV because back then it was a very, very different channel. Yeah, and that's the important thing. You know, music has changed over the course of these 40 years specifically that we're talking about. And MTV itself has changed so much. You know, people look at music videos and all that, you know, on YouTube mostly now, on their phones. It's uh, We're not turning the TV in the same fashion for it. But MTV itself started, as you mentioned, August 1st, 1981. The co-creator of MTV started off by saying, ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. And then the first ever music video to air was Video Killed the Radio Star by The Buggles. Tell me about those early days and, and the big launch, because it was a new concept at that time. 24-hour music videos, and I think they only started with about 250 videos, so there was a lot of replay at one point. The idea of having a music channel that broadcasts 24-7 and had videos and DJs who were much like DJs, disc jockeys, because basically the idea was that MTV would be like a radio station, except you could see the music now. And the concept wasn't just hatched in 1981 or 1980. The idea of music videos really go, as we say in the exhibit, go all the way back to the 1920s when the great blues singer Bessie Smith actually did a, a short promotional kind of film called St. Louis Blues. And then as we go through the decades, there were things called soundies in which R&B artists and jazz artists of the time, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Cab Calloway, and some of these great names in American music, they would do promotional videos and they would be mostly shown on something called soundies, which was basically a small video machine where if you put 10 cents in or 5 cents, you'd actually get to see these videos. And then, of course, you move into the 1960s and the real, if you will, modern fathers, if you will, of the music video that you would eventually see on MTV were the Beatles. Uh, you know, the Beatles stopped touring in August of 1966, and yet there was a tremendous demand that they perform on TV shows or whatever. And so they come up with the idea of, well, let's just make a video, and you can show the video of us 
on these television programs, both in the UK, Europe, and then also in the United States. And so that's really the start of the videos. It really goes back to the Beatles. And then by the time 1980, 81 rolls around, the idea of turning a potential radio show into a TV show, and instead of just playing music, spinning discs, you actually see videos. That just totally gave pop music a brand new dimension. And then we were off to the races at that point. I mean, definitely. Uh, you know, I can remember as a kid, MTV was kind of already in full force by the time I was coming around to it. And I would just sit there for hours into the night looking at videos. You know, I, I loved it. It was something you couldn't really turn yourself away from. Why is this exhibit in Mississippi? What's the touching point there? Most people don't realize this, but one of the prime movers behind MTV is a man by the name of Bob Pittman. And Bob Pittman happens to be from Mississippi. So when we thought about doing the exhibit, why not open it in Mississippi? This is where the idea hatched. This is the person who basically gave MTV its form, its vision, came from Mississippi. And he always attributed his roots in Mississippi to a lot of his success later on. Today, Bob Pittman runs iHeartRadio. So he's still in the business. He's still very much involved in music. And we had an exclusive interview with him about those early days that's included in the exhibit. And it was really great because for the opening of the exhibit a couple of weeks ago, he actually flew down from New York and, and was a participant. We actually did some public programs with him and some of the original DJs, Martha Quinn and Alan Hunter. And it's been really terrific because his insight and his funny stories are just quite amazing. Like, yeah. for instance, for instance, New York is where MTV really launches. And yet, in August of 1981, Manhattan did not have cable television, which, of course, is where MTV was on. So they had to take a bus across to my home state of New Jersey and watch it in a bar in New Jersey. All the people <laughs> wow. involved in MTV, they had to sit there in a bar and watch it to see what it would actually look like. So there's all kinds of great stories yeah. like that about those early days. That's part of the exhibit. And as you mentioned, just full disclosure, Bob Pittman is the CEO of iHeartMedia. That's uh, the parent company that I work for here. So, you know, it's just great to see him kind of involved, as you mentioned, in music all this time. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the evolution of MTV, because at first it was definitely all about the music videos, but the programming had to change with the times. They, I mean, they blew up so many artists they had, uh, uh, you know, Yo! MTV Raps, MTV Unplugged, which I loved, you know, stripping them down to uh, acoustic sets into animation, Beavis and Butthead, Jersey Shore, which was kind of controversial at first, but people grew to love that group of people so much. They're still making <laughs> programming about them. Tell me a little bit of the, about that evolution. Sure. Well, early on, those earliest videos were mostly British because it was the British rock bands and, and British music scene in particular in the 70s that really embraced the idea of music videos. And so early on, the first weeks, months or so of MTV, you saw a preponderance of British videos. And later then, of course, when MTV is skyrocketing in popularity, kids like yourself are watching this, and myself as well, looking at this and, and can't take our eyes off it, all of a sudden American record companies get very much involved and they start turning out videos, of course. I think, you know, one of the interesting things about it is that the great thing about music, pop music, is that it's always changing. And if you don't change with the music, you run the risk of becoming obsolete. And MTV did not want that to happen. So as pop music and pop culture evolved, 
so did MTV. So before you know it, by the late 80s and now you're getting into the 1990s, they had these incredible special programs, things like your MTV raps, which I have to say played a big part in in breaking rap, hip-hop music back then called rap, to white audiences. And that was huge for hip-hop. Same thing with grunge. I mean, hip-hop was at the forefront of bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam. Getting those videos out helped break that Seattle sound, which was maybe one of the last great, if not the last great, rock and roll sound to evolve in this country. So MTV plays a big role in that. But then they also play a big role in video music awards. You know, I mean, we're at the Grammys, and yet the video music awards were basically an attempt to compete with us, going after a younger audience, being not so, because they're on cable TV and not on standard networks, they had a little bit more freedom to be a little bit crazier. So the VMAs become really popular. And then, of course, the reality TV shows, whether it's Beavis and Butthead or, like, as you mentioned, the Jersey Shore. You're right, it was very controversial. Being Italian-American and from the Jersey Shore, I had a hard time watching that. I'm sure if my mom was still alive, she would say, do not put that in the exhibit. But I did because you can't not. I mean, it was so popular. Snooki, oh my goodness. And so we have some really cool artifacts that we got from the show, and they're all in the exhibit as well. But, you know, the the fact of the matter is MTV continues to evolve. I mean, i got to give it credit. It just moves with the times and tries to stay as relevant as possible to youth culture. And by and large, it succeeds. There's a lot of cool stuff, as you mentioned, memorabilia, artifacts, all of these interviews with some of these original VJs and everything. There's such just such a rich history with MTV. And as I mentioned, you know, people growing up during this era looked to it for that music news, for new artists, breaking artists, the whole nine. And, you know, maybe kids these days don't really uh, experience it the same way anymore. But it's no, something, no, they don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's something that just uh, was so important to music and music culture. And that's why this exhibit looks so exciting. That's right. You know, I mean, it, this, this is meant basically to show the way it was back in the day. It's a historical exhibit in, in, in the way it, it charts the importance of MTV. But also, you know, MTV still has a place in American, well, international pop culture. And they did so many things that, that, you know, part of the exhibit was to make young people aware of. Live Aid, for instance. They played a big part in 1984, one of the biggest, most successful benefit series of concerts uh, where it was basically shown from London and Philadelphia and what the role that MTV played in all that. But, you know, you talk about TRL, Total Request Live with Carson Daly. Yeah, and definitely. To the Midtown Manhattan, crazy stuff. Now, it does not have that kind of impact today, as you said. And as I said, things move on. And YouTube, for instance, TikTok, these are new versions, if you will, of MTV. They're not affiliated with it, but they do the same job that MTV was doing in the 1980s. So, uh, you know, the idea is to, to stay relevant as long as you can, and MTV has managed to do that. Bob Santelli, founding executive director of the Grammy Museum and curator of MTV Turns 40. I still want my MTV. You can get that at the Grammy Museum in Mississippi. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Oscar. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright. 
and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.